The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Okay, I want to talk uh, about Owen on preaching this afternoon, but I've only come to that topic towards the latter half of the session. I wanted to, to begin by laying out some background to understanding the importance of preaching in the 16th and 17th century. Uh, and I take it that uh, most of, if not all of you, will immediately see the relevance of that if you belong to a Protestant denomination. It doesn't have necessarily have to be a Reformed denomination. But if you belong to a Protestant denomination, if you are not a Roman Catholic, then to some extent you are the heir of the 16th and 17th century. Your life, your situation at the moment is determined to some extent by what happened in the 16th and 17th centuries. And I want to spend a little bit of time reflecting on why it is that preaching is of such critical importance to the Reformation and to Reformation theology. It should be obvious to anyone who's familiar with church architecture that if you go into a building that was made, that was built in the Middle Ages, if you go into a church building that was made in the Middle Ages and the architect knew what he was doing, then as soon as you walk through the door, your eyes are drawn to the far end of the church where the altar is. The point the architect is making is that when you walk into a church, your eyes should go to the place where the most important thing happens. And the most important thing that happens in a medieval cathedral, let's say, is the Mass. The Mass is the central point of medieval piety. That is not to say that there is no preaching in the Middle Ages. Bernard of Clairvaux preached so powerfully he caused a crusade. Preaching is significant in the Middle Ages, but it is not as significant as the practice and implementation of the sacraments. If you walk, however, into a cathedral that was built during the Protestant Reformation and the architect knew what he was doing in terms of reflecting Protestant piety, then your eyes will not be drawn to the altar so much as they will be drawn to the pulpit. St. Giles Cathedral in Edinburgh, if any of you ever have the chance to visit Edinburgh, visit St. Giles Cathedral. When you walk through the doors... Your eyes are drawn to the centre, and right at the centre of the church is the pulpit. And the reason the pulpit is right at the centre of the church is a great shift takes place at the Reformation between a sacramentally-based piety and a preaching-based piety. Why does that shift take place? Is it simply a result of the invention of the printing press? Is it simply the result of the fact that we have rising literacy rates in Europe? and that words are becoming more important perhaps than images, at least for a short period of time. I would suggest that certainly has something to do with it. But there's a deeper theological reason for the shift as well. The shift is not simply a formal or a technical shift. It's also a corollary of the doctrine of justification by faith. The promised faith structure that lies at the heart of Protestantism that you are justified by faith, and that means grasping the promises of God by faith, 
imposes demands upon the nature of Protestant piety and worship. And central to that are words. And as words become central, so preaching becomes central as well. From the Augsburg Confession to the Westminster Confession, the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the word of God, is regarded as a mark of the church across the Protestant spectrum, from Lutheran to Reformed. There is no dispute, if you like, between the Lutherans and the Zwinglians on this issue. The preaching of the word is one of the key central marks of the church. And I mentioned, I made reference last night, for those of you who are here, to the very first chapter of the Second Helvetic Confession, which has this remarkable statement, which can only arise, I think, in a context where the preaching of the word is absolutely central to church, the church's life. Chapter 1, paragraph 4, says this, Thus, when today this word of God is declared by preachers who have been legitimately called in the church, we believe that the very word of God itself is declared and is received by the faithful. An interesting identification there. The Second Helvetic Confession, 1566, identifies preaching with the word of God. Anyone familiar, of course, with the theology of Karl Barth will know that Barth makes this kind of identification between preaching and the word of God. Well, here you have the same sort of identification being made at the time of the Reformation. Why is Heinrich Bullinger, in writing this confession, making that identification? Because preaching is absolutely central to his understanding of the Christian faith. It is not simply a technical, contextual thing that happens to arise at a particular point in the church's history. It is central to the Protestant understanding of what Christianity is. Preaching, if you like, at the Reformation is understood as an announcement from God. It is understood as God speaking to the congregation. It is an effectual means of convincing and converting those who hear and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith to salvation. So preaching, first of all, Protestant Reformation, it's not a Bible study. It's not somebody doing a Bible study in church. The Protestants regarded the preaching of the Word of God as God speaking to the congregation. That, I would suggest, does mean, I'm not going to explore this much, maybe you want to ask about this uh, towards the end of the session, I would suggest that that means that worship is a dialogue. To talk more broadly, Protestant worship is a dialogue, but it's not a conversation. It's a dialogue where God speaks and the congregation respond. There is no equality, there is no equivalence, if you like, between the words of the congregation and the words of the preacher as he declares them from the pulpit. It's also, I think, a reminder to us that Protestantism at its inception conceived of the Christian life in corporate terms. Students get rather bored with me saying this, but I always say, you know, the quiet time. The quiet time can only exist when certain social and economic conditions apply. You've got to be able to have your own Bible. You've got to have a private place to go to. You've got to be able to read. If you think of your Christian life in terms of the quiet time is how you judge your spiritual vitality, 
then you need to ask yourself, well, how did the vast majority of Christians throughout history judge their vitality then, when the vast majority of Christians probably didn't own a Bible, probably didn't re couldn't read, and probably didn't have a space they could call their own to go to for a quiet time? The Protestant Reformation, it is the preaching of the Word of God, and it is the life lived out under the preaching of the Word of God, which is central to understanding what the Christian life is all about. So that then is some general broad background to understanding the nature of Puritan preaching. It is extremely important because it is the Word of God brought to bear. It is God speaking to his people through the mouth of his appointed preachers. So that's the general Protestant background then. We come now to the more specific English background to John Owen. And there are a number of things that you need to understand about the English background, about the hundred years of history before John Owen, in order to understand why Puritan preaching was so important. First of all, remember, of course, that in the 16th and 17th centuries, preaching isn't just about expounding the Word of God. That's simply not the case. Yes, it is about that, but preaching also fulfills a whole broader set of functions as well. There is no news media in the 16th or 17th centuries. Or, well, there's one starts to develop actually in the middle of the 17th century, but again, most people can't read, so it doesn't really count. The way that most people get their understanding of the world and of world events is through the preaching that takes place week by week. It's through what's said in the pulpit. Why is that important? It's important because it gives preaching a significant political role in the 16th and 17th centuries. Why is there so much persecution of preachers, Protestant preachers, by other Protestants in the 16th and 17th century? Because preaching is far more significant than just one man expounding the Word of God. Preaching is seen as a profoundly political act as well. And if you are living in England, if you're living under the Anglican Church, then by and large, the church is a means of political control of the, of the country. If you can control what's said in the pulpits, you can control the minds of the people who sit under that preaching. And that creates tensions within English society. To put it simply, there are groups within the Church of England who want a more thorough reformation of the Church of England. The 1559 settlement sets up the Book of Common Prayer as the standard and the norm for Christianity in England. And if you deviate from that, you are not just making a theological point, you are also in a kind of political rebellion against the powers that be. And that will create 60, 70, 80 years of struggle within the church itself over the role of preaching. And the government will come in the, in the 1620s and then emphatically in the 1630s to outlaw preaching and to make only repetition of the Anglican homilies the legal way of preaching on a Sunday. So imagine you're a preacher in, in England in the 1630s, 1640s, and the Anglican church, what do you do on a Sunday? You're allowed to read the homilies, to preach freely, to choose your text and to preach your text, 
that's going to get you persecuted. Why is it going to get you persecuted? Because it has dangerous political connotations. What impact does that have on people like John Owen? Well, you mix that in with what I've said about the theological importance of preaching, and it heightens the importance of preaching. Not only is it theologically crucial, it is politically crucial as well. But there's a second aspect to the English situation that is significant for the way that John Owen's preaching will be shaped, and that's this. The difference between Puritans and non-Puritans in the Church of England at a theological level, is minimal. Is minimal most of the time. You go to the 1590s. Who is the key persecutor of the Puritans in the 1590s? Archbishop of Canterbury, John Whitgift. John Whitgift is a five points of Calvinism man before, before the five points have been formulated. Theology doesn't distinguish Whitgift from the Puritans. So what happens in the 17th century, I think, is this. Puritans begin to distinguish themselves from their opponents within the church with whom they are in fundamental theological agreement by emphasizing the importance of Christian experience. Puritan preaching is experiential preaching, emphasizes Christian experience. It becomes one way of marking them off from us. They look like us, they sound like us, they have the same theology, but they don't have the same experience. So Puritan preaching will be very important for theological reasons, for political reasons, and will also have an existential dimension to it. An existential dimension, I think, is exacerbated by the whole notion of assurance. Just uh, more, uh, more as an aside here, much debate, much ink has been spilt over the problem of assurance in the late 16th and early 17th centuries. Those of you who know the story will know that when Calvin and Luther hit the scene, by and large, they seemed to see assurance as of the essence of faith. To have saving faith is to be assured of God's grace towards you. It's one of the great insights of the Reformation as opposed to the medieval period. The medieval period, assurance really didn't feature. Then you track forward. over a hundred years, to the Westminster Confession of Faith. And the Westminster Confession makes it very clear that saving faith and assurance of faith are separable. Ideally, they should be together, but in practice, they could be separated. And numerous uh, uh, theologians or historians of a theological bent have said, well, this represents a fundamental deviation from the early emphasis of the Reformation, that you're seeing here a subversion of the original glorious emphasis on assurance that you get in the Reformation. number of points uh, in response to that. One, I think if you look at Calvin's commentaries and his sermons, as opposed to just his institutes, a more nuanced view of Calvin's understanding of faith and assurance emerges. But secondly, the trouble with systematicians is they tend to think abstractly. They tend to lose sight of the fact that history deals with real people, not just ideas. The question of assurance seems to me to be this. You cannot have a problem with assurance until somebody has said that you should be assured. In other words, the Reformation itself creates a new pastoral situation with new pastoral questions that require new pastoral answers. And it is bizarre in the extreme to expect theology in 1547 to look the same as it looks in 1647. The Westminster divines are living 
with a hundred years of pastor experience of applying Reformation theology. And the application of Reformation theology has generated its own problems. And that, I think, leads their preaching to probe human experience as well. They have to address the experiential aspects of assurance and the problems of lack of assurance because these things are now bubbling up in a post-Reformation context as one would inevitably expect them to do. Calvin, Luther and company are in glorious reaction against the lack of assurance in the Middle Ages and they create a whole new set of issues and problems that have to be addressed. We can be very romantic, I think, about the way we, we, we think of the past. I said to the Reformation class, you know, imagine that uh, you're living in a world where everything's changing. People are moving to the cities. Your family's getting smaller because your cousins and your second cousins have disappeared. They're all moving to the cities and your social networks are disappearing. Uh, the one place where you can go and there's some stability is the church. And then suddenly the church starts to get transformed because of this new theology. We can think romantically about the Reformation and think, well, yeah, when my pastor would have stood up in 1530 and said, okay, we're changing to a vernacular liturgy so that you can understand what's going on. Romantically, we think everyone would have said, oh, yes. I'd be so desperate to know what's going on for so long. I suspect most people would actually have said, no, we want things just the way they are because people like things just the way they are. So we need to beware of being too romantic about the impact of Reformation thinking at a grassroots level. So then that is the background to Reformation understanding of preaching and to John Owen's understanding of preaching in the English context. Preaching for a Puritan in the 1640s is a powerful medium. It's powerful theologically, it's powerful socially and culturally, it's powerful politically. The content of preaching will have been modified by a hundred years of experience of applying Reformation theology. Issues of Christian experience will be probed in more detail and more thoroughly than they would have been in the past. So let's now come to think about John Owen in particular as a theologian. What do we know about him that would allow us to uh, think more about the way he preaches? Uh, born in 1616, dies in 1683. His life spans the most traumatic century in English history. England will be at war from 1642, really to the early 1650s, if you count the, the covenanting wars with the Scots. England will be at civil war and then at war with the Scots for over a decade. The king will be executed in 1649. We will have the equivalent of an English revolution. And say, you know, Americans, British tend to invent things like civil wars and revolution. The Americans just do them on a much grander scale eventually. But we invented civil wars. We had our own in the 1640s. Owen lived through this entire period. His life would have been marked by remarkable changes of fortune. He rises to prominence in the 1640s as a Puritan preacher of some power. He becomes a preacher to Parliament. He's chaplain to Oliver Cromwell in Cromwell's uh, expedition to Ireland in the early 1650s. He will become vice-chancellor of Oxford University. In the 1650s, Owen will be the single most important churchman in England. And then in 1660, that will all be swept away. Charles I's son, Charles II, returns. The monarchy is restored and old scores are settled. Those who backed the wrong side in the 1640s and 1650s are lucky to get away with their lives at this point. Owen will leave the Church of England in 1662 
under the strictures and terms of what is known as the Clarendon Code that effectively required not only use of the Book of Common Prayer on a Sunday in church, but the wholehearted and unconditional commitment of the minister to the Book of Common Prayer being a good and biblical document. It contained things like kneeling at communion and the wearing of special clerical garb that Owen could not tolerate. It always amazes me how my own experience of Presbyterianism here and in Scotland has been the more conservative a Presbyterian minister is, the more likely he is to look like a Roman Catholic priest walking around with a dog collar. Very unpuritan. Idolatry, Owen would have regarded that as. Not that's my opinion at all. I don't want to offend anybody out there today, but it's remarkable that a movement that looks back to the 17th century often parades itself in precisely those things that would have been most problematic in the 17th century. 1662, Owen is swept from power and will spend the last 21 years of his life on the margins, the intellectual margins in many ways of society. Unlike some of his colleagues, he appears to have been more urbane. He did continue to enjoy some favourite court and would occasionally appear at court with Charles II. But in terms of his cultural impact, it's all gone in the 1660s. And he will devote the rest of his life to writing his great treatise on the Holy Spirit and to his massive exposition of the book of Hebrews. Just as an aside again, Owen is an urbane figure. A couple of anecdotes. He was always being criticised when he was Vice-Chancellor of Oxford for parading up and down the high street in Oxford wearing thigh-length Spanish leather boots. Spanish leather, it's a bit like buying French, I suppose, four or five years ago here. If you're in Britain in the, in the 17th century, you don't want to be seen to be patronising the Spanish economy generally. There was a speech made at the University of Cambridge where Owen is criticised for, quotes, putting enough powder in his wig every morning to prime seven cannons. So Owen rather bucks the image of the, the dowdy Puritan. You have this powdered wig and these great big magnificent uh, thigh boots that he parades around town in. What about his significance then for us? How can we reflect upon Owen and use him, if not as a model to be blindly followed, at least as a theologian and preacher whose uh, sermons and whose thinking can, we can use as a corrective foil to some of the ways we operate today. Well, just a few more points of background on Owen. His theology is defined very much in terms of three polemical counterpoints. There were three major issues, three major movements in his day that he saw as highly problematic to the church. The first was Roman Catholicism. And his primary concern about Roman Catholicism was the Mass. And it was because the Mass, as he saw it, took away from the priesthood of Christ. That you have priests making an offering to God. And the priesthood of Christ is robbed of its absolute efficacy. It's once for all efficacy. And much of his uh, preaching will connect with Catholicism at a polemical level. I certainly want to argue, and I've done this in my writings on Owen, that Owen is heavily indebted to Catholic theology at numerous crucial points. But in terms of ecclesiastical practice, Catholicism comes up far short on the issue of Christ's priesthood. Arminianism. Arminianism is the second polemical counterpoint. And when you're thinking Arminianism in the 17th century, 
you know, we all have good Armenian friends, evangelical Armenian friends, and by and large, many of us are happy to stand shoulder to shoulder with them on numerous theological issues. Arminianism in the 17th century has much more sinister connotations than it does today. It's a bit like Quakerism. You know, we tend to know Quakers, if you've got Quaker friends, they tend to be pacifists. In the 17th century, there were some pretty violent Quakers around. Quakers were campaigning to get Oliver Cromwell to use the English navy to besiege Rome and overthrow the papal antichrist. Not a particularly pacifist move on the part of the Quakers, that. Arminians, often seen as radical and subversive, Theology always has political connotations. So the Arminians were not seen, if you like, as brethren in error by a guy like John Owen. They were seen as being fundamentally erroneous and heretical at crucial points. And the most significant point at which they are fundamentally erroneous and heretical, the priesthood of Christ again. The priesthood of Christ The Arminians make the death of Christ of no effect as far as Owen is concerned. The death of Christ makes salvation possible, but it doesn't close the deal. It doesn't have that objective finishing of salvation. In other words, Arminians require, as far as Owen is concerned, the priesthood of Christ to be supplemented by an act of the human will. And the third group, the third group that Owen uh, spends perhaps more time than either of the others in polemical interaction with this Socinianism. Where Arminianism ends and where Socinianism begins in the 17th century is not always obvious. But by and large, we could say this in terms of the relationship between Socinianism and Arminianism. Socinianism is an explicitly anti-Trinitarian movement. There is a legend out there that Socinianism is a rationalist movement. You'll often hear that popularly talked about, or Socinianism is kind of early rationalist movement. That's certainly not the case when Socinianism starts. Socinianism is an anti-metaphysical movement, and there is a difference between being anti-metaphysical and being rationalist. The Socinians effectively get rid of the doctrine of the Trinity, they get rid of substitutionary atonement, Christ becomes a mere man, albeit a rather perfect one, who is ultimately adopted as God's son in his resurrection. But Christ becomes a mere man and his salvation lies in the way he lives out this perfect life that is a paradigm for those of us who follow, who wish to know how one should live out a life in dependence on God. If you think Socinianism is rationalism, one example, the the great continental Socinian, uh, Socinian Crelius. Of course, if you don't have a doctrine of the incarnation, you have the opposite kind of Christological problems to those which we Orthodox have. If you have an orthodox Christology, then you're going to struggle a bit with those texts that seem to indicate that Christ doesn't know stuff that perhaps he should do. No man knows the day or the hour, not even the Son of Man. That kind of text gives you pause for thought if you hold to an orthodox Christology where Christ is both God and man. Problem for the Socinians, of course, is the opposite. It's that Christ appears to know stuff that, humanly speaking, he shouldn't do. He seems to have second sight. So Crelius comes up with this idea of saying, well, what happens is Christ at some point is beamed up into heaven. He's a mere man, but he's kind of beamed up into heaven, Star Trek-wise. And the Lord God fills him in on the things that he needs to know that he doesn't know naturally, and then beams him back down again. Why do I tell that anecdote? That's not rationalism. Whatever else that is. It might be loopy, it might be wacky, but it's not rationalism. 
That's not a rationalist view of Christ at all. It's speculation based on an over-literal hermeneutic of Scripture. And I think Socinianism's problem is not rationalism as so much as blunt biblicism. No analogy of faith in the way that Scripture is approached. But those three groups are the major groups that uh, Owen is reacting against. And that will lead Owen to accent the priesthood of Christ. That will lead Owen to accent the priesthood of Christ. Now I'm going to make a distinction in a few minutes. I do think that Owen's preaching and Owen's theology, there are loose wires between them. And I prefer his theology to his preaching in many ways. But if you have Owen's theology, then your preaching will naturally be Christ-centred. Not necessarily exclusively in a modern redemptive historical way, but will focus upon Christ as the executor of God's plan of salvation in history. And the reason why Owen has that focus in his theology is he sees it as the real point where the Catholics, the Arminians and the Sassinians are pushing back against orthodoxy. So then, that's some of the background. Second point that will be of a little, a little relevance when we think of some of his sermons is his political standpoint. He's an independent. Now, independency in the, in the 1640s and 1650s, that's not simply a case of, well, I happen to have changed my mind about church government. I'm no longer a Presbyterian. I'm an independent. Independents are politically radical. Politically radical. And independents approve of the political and military changes that are taking place in the 1640s and the 1650s in England. Now that will become important in a couple of minutes when I reflect briefly on the sermon that Owen preached the day after the king was executed. Remember, in the 1640s and 1650s, Owen's on the winning side, and he basically approves of what's going on, from the civil war to the execution of the king to the establishment of the Commonwealth. He's not so keen on Cromwell's later aspirations. But from, say, 1642 to 1655, Owen very much approves of what's going on in Britain at this time. It's a long-winded way of getting to all the background. Now let's come to think about some specific theological underpinnings of Owen's preaching. I've already mentioned one, and that's the Christ-centred nature of his theology. All of Owen's theology tracks back to Christ. Why does it do that? Because Christ is the revelation and the execution of God's eternal plan of salvation. Christ is the revelation and the execution of God's eternal plan of salvation. How do you know that God is love? Because God became manifest in the flesh as the Lord Jesus Christ. For Owen, it tracks back conceptually to the covenant of redemption. The idea that Father, Son and Holy Spirit in eternity covenant together for the Son to come to earth and be the last Adam and to execute the plan of salvation. So the first thing to note about Owen's theology is it's Christ-centred. It's Christ-centred because Christ is the revelation and the execution of God's eternal plan of salvation. But there is no opposition in Owen's thinking between Christ-centred thinking and Trinitarian thinking. And this, I think, is an important point to grasp. I'm now going to engage in a polemic numerous of the students will have heard me engage in on several occasions in class. Protestant theology is functionally Unitarian. That's my experience of it. 
You can listen to sermons in the Protestant tradition and a Unitarian could preach them or a modalist could preach them. Protestant theology, if it's reflected in its sermons, is woefully inadequate on the doctrine of the Trinity. The Trinity seems to have little or no impact on the way Protestants think about God. And I suspect if you go to your congregations this weekend and say to people, do you believe in the Trinity? Of course they're going to say they believe in the Trinity. And if you say to them, well, what difference does it make? I'd be interested to know how many of them could give a coherent answer. And if they can't give a coherent answer, it may be because they're stupid. Or it may be because you've taught them badly. In which case it lies at your door, not theirs. For Owen... Christ, as the revelation of God, his identity is not just established by the biblical narrative in terms of the historical economy, but the biblical narrative itself points back to his identity as the Son of God. And if you identify Christ as the Son of God, then you have to come to a Trinitarian understanding of who Christ is. You have to come to a Trinitarian understanding of who Christ is. Christ's identity is established by the biblical narrative, but it rests in the eternal loving relationship of Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And this Trinitarian matrix pervades Owen's theology. There's a book just been published. It's a, it's a, a new... I mean, you can get it, it's in, it's in uh, volume two of John Owen's works. It's on communion with God in three persons. It's just been published as a very convenient and attractive paperback. You can get it in the bookstore here with a very nice introduction by a professor at Covenant College, Kelly Capick. What does Owen do in that book? In that book, Owen draws out the fact that the Trinity is critical for Christian piety. There is no Christian piety for Owen, which is not Trinitarian piety. And I think that book is more or less unique in the literature of Protestantism in doing that. Calvin does it a bit in the Institutes. But in the annals of the history of Protestant theology, that is the only book I can think of that presents the whole economy of salvation and the whole of human response in Trinitarian terms. Absolutely critical Trinitarianism to Owen's thinking because his thinking is Christ-centred. He's read so much of the early church fathers. He knows that debates about the identity of Christ in the early church are only resolved when the identity of God as Trinity is itself resolved. And I would suggest to you that in a day and age where probably Mormonism and Islam Maybe the two fastest growing religions in North America. I don't know. But I'm guessing Mormonism and Islam. The thing that most distinguishes you from the Mormons and the Muslims is you hold a doctrine of the Trinity. And if you have a very slippery, loose grasp of the doctrine of the Trinity, or your people do, you're in real trouble. You're in real trouble when the Mormons and the Muslims come knocking at your door to witness. Trinitarianism is critically important. It always has been. And it's apologetically more important now, perhaps, than at any point since the 17th century. So Owen's thinking, because it's focused on Christ, is also Trinitarian. And Owen, I, I think the only... The theologian that, that seems to me to be closest to John Owen in terms of his reflection on the Trinity is the Eastern Greek father Gregory Natsianzus. 
When Nazianzus has that great statement in, I think is it 41st Theological Oration, I, uh, I can't remember, when he says that every time I think of the three, my mind is drawn to the worship the one. And every time I think of the one, my mind is drawn to worship the three. It's about as good as it gets in Trinitarian theology. And I think that Owen stands within that camp. At the end of this great book on communion with God, which I commend you to purchase, he makes this statement that God's... Why do we worship God? Because it's divine essence. But you can't worship raw divine essence. You worship God as tripersonal, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Closely connected to that, in Owen's theology, is the connection between union and communion. And this is where I think Owen nicely makes the connection between the objective and the subjective. I sometimes fear within the Westminster tradition that there's so much uh, fear of pietism and legalism uh, that we, you know, we confuse pietism with piety, if I could put it that way. And we have this great fear of legalism and introspection that leads us to do nothing but stress the objective. The indicative, I think, is the trendy word the biblical guys use for it. They stress the indicative rather than the imperative. We stress what God has done for us rather than what God does in us. Owen, I think, strikes a nice balance, and this comes out in his preaching. Owen makes a distinction between union and communion. Union is what is brought about objectively by God. God sends his son who dies on the cross for us at Calvary and rises again and ascends to heaven. And then the Holy Spirit comes and the Holy Spirit works in sovereign grace on individuals and unites them to Christ. There's no synergy there. There's no synergism. The drawing into union with Christ is an act of God. It's not a cooperation between men and women, boys and girls and God. It is done by God. But that is not the end of the story for Owen. Owen talks about communion. And he says this, Our communion with God, he says, consists in his communication of himself unto us, with our return unto him of that which he requires and accepts, flowing from that union which in Jesus Christ we have with him. End quote. In other words, the objectivity of salvation demands a correlative response on the part of the believer. And while the union with God is objective and can never be lost, the Christian life is lived out in communion with God, in us responding in our daily lives to what God has objectively done for us. And for Owen, this is profoundly Trinitarian, because Father, Son and Holy Spirit, as one God, they act to save. And yet there are certain peculiar tasks or qualities, if you like, that apply to the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit in salvation that determine the way we respond to him. For Owen, for example, the Father, in the, what does the Son reveal? The Son reveals above all the Father's love to us. And the primary response of the Father's love to us is to love the Father. The Holy Spirit acting in Christ. What does the Holy Spirit do in Christ? Well, works in Christ to bring about holiness. The Holy Spirit, how are we to respond to the Holy Spirit? through holiness and obedience. So Owen sees the Trinity not simply as a so-what doctrine. Oh yeah, well, objectively we know about the Trinity and that's what does it all. 
But Owen sees the very fact that the Trinity brings about our union with God, determining the way we should respond to him. So that then are some theological themes in Owen. I just want to end briefly now by highlighting a number of themes that occur in his preaching that I think perhaps are of relevance for us to think about today. First thing is, there are more parallels between 17th century England and 21st century America than one would, one would perhaps imagine. I think the English in the 17th century have every right to believe that their nation is the meaning of history. And that is a fault I think I see commonly in America today. There is this assumption that America is, in some sense, the end term of history. And the rest of history is just a playing out of the exporting of America in terms of liberal democracy across the world. Francis Fukuyama most uh, famously argued this, you know, the last man in the end of history. Book published maybe 15, 20 years ago when he thought that the falling down of the Berlin Wall marked the final stage in the historical process and everything else would now fall out into free markets and democracy all over the world. Sounds a rather dated book these days when you describe it that way. Hasn't quite played out as the end of history that he thought it was. But the interesting thing is, English people in the 17th century, many Americans in the 21st century, regard themselves as having a special place in God's providence. Special place in God's providence. And that's interesting because in Owen's sermons, providence is a frequent theme. And particularly in his uh, sermon of January the 31st, 1649, which he preaches the day after Charles I has been executed. And if ever there was an eschatological day, it had got to be the day after the King of England had been executed by Parliament. Owen preaches a sermon, and providence is a strong theme in that sermon. What is interesting, however, and what I think is, is useful is, Owen does not use providence as a way of talking up his cause. Remember I said a few minutes ago, Owen was on the winning side. And he had every reason to believe on January the 31st, 1649, he was really, really on the winning side. And what does he do? He preaches a sermon about national sins and about opposition that will come to truth and about how the need of the hour is not triumphalism, is not assuming, if you like, that England is the meaning of history. The need of the hour is this, to expect suffering. And to read that suffering as providential. And not to read that suffering as a theodicy problem. You know, so many of us are pro when something bad happens to us, our instinct dies. Why is this happening to us? It's a natural, obvious response in many ways. But Owen's argument is providence, the suffering that providence brings in its wake, is not a theodicy problem. It's an opportunity for learning the truth about the world and God. So if you like, the response to suffering is not to say, why is this happening to me? The response to suffering is to say, everything happens according to God's will. What am I to learn from this? So first, maybe there's two points there. The strong sense of providence was not combined in Owen's thinking with a kind of mindless nationalism. What Owen saw providence as marked by above all in 1649 was suffering. I mean, you think about it. This is a country that's been through seven years of horrendous warfare. Suffering would have been the very air they breathed. Not triumphalism, 
but providence as bringing suffering in order to teach more about God. Owen talks about suffering a lot in his sermons. Setbacks and suffering, he said, for says, fulfill this good purpose. They draw out the prayers of the faithful. They make the faithful more dependent upon God. And this is how we'll often use the biblical stories. We tend to think of Puritans, well, we have this caricature of the Puritans. They read the story of Daniel and it becomes a kind of legalistic criterion. Dare to be a Daniel. You've got to go out and do better than Daniel or you're not a good Christian. Well, Owen uses the Old Testament stories as patterns and examples, but not in that kind of fashion. For Owen, he would go to the book of Daniel and he would see the suffering of Daniel and he would say, what you learn here is something about the way God deals with his saints. It does have exemplary significance. You can preach it as an example, but not as a legalistic example, as an example that teaches you something about the way God works through suffering to his greater good. Another point, there's a constant theme in Owen's writings, and I think this is probably much neglected today. The holiness of God, absolutely axiomatic to Owen's theology and to his preaching. 1649, what is it that stops him from being triumphalist on January the 31st, 1649? It's his awesome concept of the holiness of God that even for all of Parliament's military might, and we had the greatest army on the face of the earth on January the 31st, 1649, the new model army had been through, you know, metaphorically had been through hell and back and had come back triumphant. But Owen's triumphalism is cut off at knees if ever it was there because of his awesome understanding of the holiness of God. The understanding these men had of God's otherness and of the awesome nature of the greatness of his work in Christ, really made them small men in their own eyes, if I could put it that way. And again, maybe your experience is very different to mine, but by and large, the awesome holiness of God is not a great theme in modern preaching, I don't think. And I wonder... I was sort of talking to a student, this is, a, this is anecdotal, I was talking to a former student of Westminster for a few uh, months back about particular trends in a certain kind of theology vis-a-vis justification. And I said to this student, you know, it looks, on paper, it looks very much like what Richard Baxter was teaching in the 17th century. I said, and the result of Baxter's teaching was terrible problems with assurance, terrible problems with lack of assurance. And I said to the student, do you think that this new teaching on justification will lead to horrendous pastoral problems on justification. And he said, no. I said, well, why not? Because there seem to be so many formal similarities. And he said, to have a lack of assurance, he said, you have to have an awesome concept of the holiness of God. He said, I just don't see that in this. I thought that was an interesting comment. I'm not making that as a, to have a cheap shot about any sophisticated view of justification. But I thought that student had put his finger on something significant there. To suffer from lack of assurance... You have to have an awesome conception of the holiness of God. How many people here have suffered from lack of assurance because their understanding of the holiness of God is overwhelming? It's an interesting, interesting question to ask. I mentioned the centrality of Christ. This, in my reading of Owen's sermons, is that he can mute the centrality of Christ in his sermons. There's a sense in which when you read the Puritans, I think it's often better to do what they say rather than what they do. 
But in theory, Christ is central to God's revelatory action and this should be reflected in Owen's sermons. And finally, of course, there is the practical impact of all these doctrines. For John Owen, no doctrine was useless. The Trinity had a practical impact. The holiness of God has a practical impact. The simplicity of God has a practical impact. In a day when an awful lot of theologians are saying simplicity of God doesn't fulfill any useful function. Well, I can't speak to its philosophical, biblical coherence or not. I'm just a historian. But it certainly wasn't a useless doctrine in the 17th century. The simplicity of God reminded human beings of how different God was to them and was not unconnected to their awesome conception of God's holiness. I see I'm running out of time, so I want to give time for a few minutes of questions. So I'll pause there and throw it open for for some questions. John Owen's theology.